Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 30. Uh, it can be found in, on page 712 of some of your pew, pew Bibles. Um, I encourage you to follow along, but today I'll actually be reading from the English Standard or ESV version of the Bible, of the translation. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. We should probably do that too, right? <laughs> Holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, dining couches. And the, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus. Uh, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he, Jesus, said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father and, or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, weaknesses, well, weak, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Verse 24. And from there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not, and he entered a house and, he, and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. 
and she begged him to cast the demons out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go away your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of God. Good morning, Crossbridge. Um, I'm delighted to welcome up Jeff Wong to the pulpit to give today's message. Uh, Jeff is a candidate for our uh, pastoral candidate for our college and young adult uh, pastoral position. Uh, Jeff grew up at our church. Um, Jeff and his wife Ying have served here in, in many, many ways. And during this candidate weekend, I think some of you have had an opportunity um, to interact with Jeff. Um, so we're delighted to, to invite him up to give the sermon for today. Please give him a warm welcome. So about 10 years ago, I, I joined our, a particular group of people. It was a process that took months to complete, and every week I would spend hours at this place along with other people. Some of them were members, and some of them weren't. And after I became a member, there were a, a number of things I needed to fulfill to maintain my membership. And so by the end of it, what did I have to show for it? This gold card. Some of you who can see it probably know exactly what this is. It's the card given to those who have attained gold status at Starbucks. Now, let's forget for a moment that Starbucks kind of redid their whole awards program recently and just kind of track with me here, right? So this gold card marked me out from the rest of the people who didn't. And because of that, you might have certain assumptions of what a person is like who frequents Starbucks enough to deserve a gold card like this. For one, they, they must really like Starbucks. Maybe, maybe they even prefer it to Dunkin' Donuts, which might be blasphemy here because America runs on Dunkin'. Maybe, uh, perhaps, they'll presume to know uh, about coffee. Or at the very least, they'll have their opinions about they, what they want. So they'll go up to the barista and say, you know, I want a grande chai tea latte, three pumps skim milk, light water, no foam, extra hot. Or uh, our venti ice skinny hazelnut macchiato, sugar-free syrup, extra shot, light ice, no whip. And they probably need their caffeine fix, right? On the way to school, on the commute to work, just an afternoon pick-me-up or an excuse to get out of the office with your coworkers. Either way, this gold card right here, it might, it might tell you a lot about the person holding it, or it might not. I mean, yeah, I ended up going to Starbucks a lot, enough at least to, to earn this gold card. And yes, I, I kind of went through certain rituals and certain behaviors, and, and I had a gold card to mark myself out from the rest of these people and to align myself with this particular group of people. But apart from that, I don't, I don't think that I would fit the type of person you might think of who frequents a coffee store that often. You see, when I went, I always ordered the same thing. It was a mocha or java chip frappuccino. And I got it decaf. Some would not even dare call that coffee. And prior to dating my now wife and getting her coffee while she studied in college or in med school, I didn't even know how to order a cup of coffee. Because I didn't need to up to that point. 
And yeah, I can, I can rattle off terms like French press and pour over and cold brew and say things like, yeah, you can really taste the coffee with this method instead of your typical Folgers instant mix. But I have no idea what I'm talking about. Nor do I have any experience with any of that, even though I can go through the motions and say, through, say these things. So what's my, what's my point here? Just because I have a gold card, just because I go to a coffee store often enough and can kind of sound like this group of people and kind of go through some of these motions, is that what really makes me part of this group of people? Or is this something else? In the passage that was read for us today, it's Mark chapter 7, 1 to 30, we're going to encounter a couple of different people, beginning with the Pharisees and the scribes. And at the start of our passage, we find that they're pretty concerned with these rituals, specific rituals of washing yourself so as not to defile yourself and to make yourself unclean. That's to say that they're concerned with these rituals of behavior so they don't become unacceptable before God and unable to approach him. But what we find instead in our passage is Jesus challenging the very presumptions of what makes a person unclean and what marks people off as the people of God. And so in the same way that I kind of went through certain rituals and had a gold card to my name, it didn't necessarily mean that I belonged to this group of coffee-loving caffeine drinkers. So if you will, you can open up your Bible, or your Bible apps maybe, or grab one of the Bibles in front of you in the pews. We're going to be working our way through the text of Mark 7. Now if you don't have a Bible, maybe for some of you never even opened one up before, it's okay. Now I'm going to have some of the verses up here on the PowerPoint as well, so you can kind of follow along, and they'll also be in the English Standard Version. But for those of you who do, it's going to help to kind of follow along in your Bibles, maybe perhaps be like the Berean Jews in Acts 17, who when they heard from Paul and Silas, the scripture says that they examined the scriptures themselves to see if these things were true. So let's turn to our passage. The first thing that we're going to see is this. Performing hypocritical rituals does not resolve the problem of producing a holy people. It's verses 1 to 13. Now, there's a lot there, so let's try and break this down, right? Try and get at some of the background that maybe perhaps is filling out these first few verses. So, like I mentioned before, the, the Pharisees and these scribes are concerned with doing these rituals so they don't become defiled or unclean. But the problem is this. Ritual purity can mark a people, but it doesn't make them holy. In our passage, maybe you picked up on this, we see this word tradition repeated a couple times. Six times, actually, in most of our English translations. And this tradition is referring to what the people of Israel called the oral law, or the Mishnah. It was this oral tradition which they believed God also gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, along with the written law. That's the, the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. And so they believed that this oral tradition, this oral law, was just as authoritative. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, maybe you probably walked away with a sense that God is a holy God, right? And he calls his people to be holy as he is holy. I mean, that's the whole message of Leviticus summed up, be holy as I'm holy. So obviously, Israel would, would be very concerned about wanting to keep to that. And so the oral law kind of spelled out in detail how they would specifically fulfill what God commanded in the written law. So if God says, be pure, 
don't defile yourself, be holy, you might ask, okay, how do I go about doing that? I want to obey God's commands. I want to make sure I don't don't disobey. Pragmatically speaking, how do I make sure I, I don't defile myself? And so this is where the oral law came in. It was described as a a fence around the Torah. So in order not to break God's commandments, go follow these rituals and these traditions that elaborate on every conceivable implication of these commandments. Now the problem was that in building this fence around the Torah, they ended up caring more about the fence and less about the Torah. Now the oral law served another purpose too. See, in this post-exilic context, as the Jewish people begin to encounter more and more of the surrounding Gentile and Roman and Greco-Roman and pagan culture, the importance of being a holy people, set apart for God and separate and distinct from other people, is it, well, the importance grew. And so these ritual purity practices were one way to continue to mark themselves out from those who weren't the people of God. But the fact of the matter is that this ritual purity, it could mark them as a people, but it didn't make them holy. It didn't make them pure. It didn't make them morally acceptable to God. And oftentimes, too, I think we have this, perhaps an overemphasis sometimes on rituals and traditions, which we believe helps to characterize Christians, but not necessarily consecrate them. You know, for example, believing that you're a Christian, per se, if you align yourself with one political party as opposed to another. Or, or maybe we have these acceptable Christian practices, like what clothes to wear, or what movies to watch, or what books to read, what music to listen to, which altogether actually may not necessarily be bad. It may actually be necessary or good. But we would be fooling ourselves if we equated not reading Harry Potter with being a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, how does the old hymn go? They will know we are Christians by our traditions? I don't think that's right. So the Pharisees, they were concerned about following these traditions, their traditions. And they saw this as an opportunity then to attack Jesus by attacking his disciples' behavior. So let's turn to the text, verse 5. These Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk or not live according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? This is where Jesus turns it back on them. He calls them out and he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Because this is what Jesus is getting at. Man-made rituals cannot override God-given commandments. Jesus gives an example of how they're actually doing this. He says in verses 9 to 13, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For, and here's that key conjunction here, kind of explaining how they do that. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, that's from the written law, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus mentions this practice of Corbin. 
It's when you declare something as, as given to God. But it doesn't have to be given right away. It doesn't have to be done right away. Uh, so a modern comparison might be something like deferred or planned giving. Or, or having a college trust fund. Or, or having a will. That, that money, that estate, it's designated for a particular person or institution. But they, don't, they don't get it right away. When you die, they'll, they'll get that money. But in the meantime, you maintain control over it. Do you see the loophole here? This money, which would have been used to support mom and dad in their old age, well, it's Corbin. It's, it's God's now. Now, when I die, it's going to go to the temple. It's going to go to God. But in the meantime, it's mine. I'm going to maintain control over it. I, I can't use it for my parents anymore. In fact, I'm not even allowed to according to the oral law, according to the tradition. In the meantime, I maintain control over it, and consequently, I prevent my parents from having any of it. By establishing and holding to their man-made rituals, they were overriding God-given commandments. And so that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah when he says to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now he calls them hypocrites. Right? I think ten, the, the tendency sometimes for us is we read a passage of scripture and we zone in, hone in on, on you know, certain words that, that stick out to us. And I think hypocrites is one of them. We hear this word hypocrite get, get thrown around a lot now. You know, people say, they, they look at these so-called righteous or holier-than-thou Christians who, who say one thing and, and then do another. And we say, oh, they're a hypocrite, and we use that as a reason for us not wanting to believe in God or, or come to church. But I, I think there's a lot more going on here, and that's maybe perhaps not exactly the, the sense in which we find Jesus using this word. As Anigo uh, Montoya once said, you keep using that word. I think it means what you think it means. The word hypocrite was this theater term for playing a part on stage. So being an actor or an actress, basically putting on a mask, being a pretender. Now we tend to refer to hypocrisy as simply practice, not practicing what you preach. And so when the so-called righteous Christians fail, well, we label them as hypocrites. But again, I don't think that's quite what Jesus is getting at here. Because it would be hard to make a case that the Pharisees of all people were not practicing what they preached. In fact, they probably practiced what they preached better than anyone will ever know. After all, they are the proponents of this oral law, and they made sure to keep it to themselves to the T, and to make sure other people kept it as well. So why, why does Jesus call them hypocrites? In our passage, hypocrisy is not simply not practicing what you preach. It can include that. But it's the failure to believe in it. There's a lack of sincerity. Sometimes that ends up with you saying one thing and doing another, but sometimes it, it doesn't. After all, that's what being an actor is like. You're pretending. You don't actually believe in what you're saying. And so this issue here for the Pharisees is this, this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hypocrisy is not simply when you are morally inconsistent. Otherwise, even on our best days, we're all hypocrites. 
Hypocrisy is being morally deceitful. You're not a hypocrite when you say you shouldn't lie, then you end up lying, but you throw yourself on the grace of God and the work of the Spirit. You're a hypocrite when you say you shouldn't lie, but you don't mean it. I'll give a quick example. Some of you who know me know that sometimes I like to tease my wife and give her a hard time because she sometimes forgets to wear her wedding ring. And uh, I realized on the way to church this morning that I forgot to wear my wedding ring. So I might, I might be in a little bit of trouble later. Does, does that make me a hypocrite because I said one thing and, and did another? Not necessarily because I meant it and I'm going to put on that wedding ring when I get home. So this is what Jesus was getting at with the Pharisees and scribes. They honored God with their lips, but their hypocritical rituals showed that there was no sincerity in the words they spoke. They rejected the commandment of God and held to their own tradition. Now, then given what we said, I think the term hypocrite is, is an extreme one, not to be taken or used lightly. And I would hope, I would venture to say that most of us in this room are probably not like the Pharisees and scribes, hopefully with such a, an audacious lack of sincerity, saying one thing and completely meaning another. At the same time, though, while we may not necessarily be hypocrites in the strictest sense of the word, we do have to be wary of focusing too much on our own rituals and not enough on God's commandments. Maybe that's focusing too much on getting the right harmony rather than having a right heart of worship when it comes to leading worship and praise. Maybe that's focusing too much on people coming to church and not enough on people coming to Christ. Now here's the main caveat that I feel like I I need to say. Rituals and, and traditions are not necessarily bad. We just shouldn't elevate them to the level of divine revelation. You see, I've been on what I call this pseudo-sabbatical since I've been coming back from New York, and uh, I've had the chance to visit other churches, and it's been fruitful, and I've been able to kind of see their traditions and their rituals, how they, kind of, how they do church. And many of these rituals, are, they're not inherently bad. They're neutral. When you have worship service, is it 9 a.m.? Is it 11.15? Is it 10, 12, 2? Whether you had the lights on or lights off during worship service, it's not, it's not bad per se. It's only bad when we elevate them to the level of Scripture. Because sometimes, sometimes we care more about the color of the carpet than the character of the people walking on that carpet week in and week out. Now, I mention all this as a caveat because I think the attitude among some of us, particularly those who kind of skew a little bit younger, we tend to be anti-tradition anti-institution, anti-organized anything. Really, we're a real skeptical generation. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily bad to ask questions, and it's good. But we might read this passage and walk away from it thinking, yeah, down with the tradition of men. Jesus was against us, so am I. These rituals and traditions and beliefs of the faith are outdated and outmoded. It's time for change. But I think in doing so, we miss out on the point that Jesus was driving at. The problem wasn't that the Pharisees had traditions. It was that these traditions were directly against the word of God revealed in Scripture. 
They were deriving these traditions and rituals from a source other than Scripture, other than God's Word, and claiming it to be equally authoritative. The Pharisees and scribes, they held to these traditions. They focused on them thinking it would make them clean. It would make them acceptable to God and able to approach Him. But they confused symbolic purity with actual purity. Performing hypocritical rituals does not resolve the problem of producing a holy people. And as we continue on in this passage, Jesus explains why. Here's the second point. The heart of the problem is the problem of our hearts. As much as these Pharisees and scribes obeyed their rituals, they still walked away with the Son of God charging them with disobeying God. Because the issue was the heart. They were insincere. Didn't matter how many times you washed your hands before you ate, washing your hands is not the same thing as washing your heart. So Jesus explains in these next few verses, what defiles is not what goes into the body, but what comes out of the heart, verses 14 to 20. These rituals, they were meant to point to the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind, our sinfulness, your sinfulness. They were a symbol of a spiritual reality. The problem was that the Pharisees conflated physical defilement with spiritual defilement. So Jesus explains in verses 18 to 19. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? It's like when some of you were younger, probably not nowadays because maybe it's not so PC, but maybe you swore and you uh, said some, some swear words and your parents told you to wash your mouth out with soap. Or they made you wash your mouth out with soap. Washing your mouth out with soap doesn't solve the problem, though, right? It's a symbolic act. It's a ritual. It doesn't make you want to swear any less. It doesn't get rid of that desire. Maybe it just modifies your behavior a little bit. Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And often when Scripture talks about the heart, it's talking about the essence of our person, the will, the seat of desire. So Jesus is saying that that heart, that will, that's the thing that makes us unclean or unholy. And why is that the problem? Because the heart is not as holy as we would hope. So in verses 21 to 23, Jesus explains with this word for again, right? For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, and theft, murder, adultery, and he goes on. And all these evil things, he says, come from within, and they defile a person. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's what comes out of the heart that defiles the person, not what goes into the body. And what comes out are these sinful desires. Jesus gives a whole list of what comes out of the heart of a person. And the first thing in this list is evil thoughts. So some translations might have evil plans. I mean, either way, it functions as this umbrella term for everything that comes after. 
So from these evil thoughts or desires or, or plans come these 12 examples of evil acts and attitudes. So things like sexual immorality, theft, murder, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Jesus is going straight to the source. You want to be a a holy people as God is holy? You want to mark yourselves out as God's people? Start with the heart. Now, what difference does that make for us today? You see, Jesus paints a pretty bleak picture of our hearts. It's not to say that nothing good can come out of our hearts, but it should give us pause, especially when we live with and maybe even operate from a worldview that says, follow your heart. I mean, isn't that the main message that we hear today from the world, from each other? Maybe we tell each other, you know, be true to yourself. You got to know yourself. Follow your heart. You got to look inside to discover who you are and live according to that, and no one can tell you otherwise. You see, we're moving past the age of moral relativism where it says truth can't be found. Our culture now says truth can be found. It's found in you. Look inside, and you become the sole arbiter of truth. It's your truth. Speak your truth. Speak his truth. Speak her truth. Sociologists have a term for this. It's called expressive individualism. It's the belief that identity comes through self-expression, through discovering one's most authentic desires and being free to be one's authentic self. And this expressive individualism comes across in a lot of different ways. So I'll give you a couple examples. And most of them are from Disney, so it's not... I love Disney, and I love these songs, but we just should be aware that when we sing these songs, it's not just singing, we're being taught certain things. So in Wreck-It Ralph, for example, the first one, this is not a song, but in that movie, all these bad guys, right, they, in these video games, they come together for this bad guy support group. And they have this oath, which they recite. I am bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one I would rather be than me. And since the Mulan trailer came out, which I'm sure most of us are really excited about, but back in the cartoon, right, they had the song, who is that, I'm not going to sing it for you guys, who is that girl I see staring straight back at me? When will my reflection show who I am inside? Frozen, something more recently. Let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, I hope that as our children see it and we've seen along with them, we realize that, well, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Moana, even more recent. I know everybody on this island seems so happy on this island. Everything is by design. I know everybody on this island has a role on this island, so maybe I can roll with mine. I can lead with pride. I can make us strong. I'll be satisfied if I play along. But the voice inside sings a different song. What is wrong with me? 
So expressive individualism says, look inside, follow your heart, be true to yourself. Scripture tells us, look inside, it's not that pretty. That's why we need a new heart. That's why Jesus came to, in part to give us a new heart. God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel and he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So if Jesus focused on the heart, so, so should we. And sometimes that's difficult though, right? I don't think I'm too far off when I say that we are a church that gets things done. We have a problem, we derive a solution. We come up with metrics, lots of metrics. Tons of metrics to back that up. Charts, graphs, pivot tables, congregational surveys, data analysis, it's great, I love it. But let's not forget that the heart doesn't always produce easily defined metrics. So yeah, we, we can hold each other accountable and we should by asking each other, hey, have you been reading the Bible lately? You know, let's, let's hold each other accountable, let's have a spreadsheet and just tally up how many times we read, which passage we read and who read it. But, but let's also ask each other, do you enjoy reading the Bible? Are you being nourished by it? We can ask each other, are you, are you sharing the gospel? Did you share the gospel this, last, last week? Have you memorized the bridge illustration and all these other illustrations? But, but let's also ask, do you care if someone is lost? When you strike up a conversation with a stranger or a coworker, is one of the first things that comes to mind, hey, this person doesn't know Jesus. And, and I want them to know Jesus. Performing hypocritical rituals does not resolve the problem of producing a holy people. And that's because the heart of the problem is the problem of our hearts. Now here's the last point. The people of God now are those with a heart of faith, not a facade of piety. Our passage ends with this kind of shift in the narrative. Verses 24 to 30. From there, he, Jesus, he arose and went, went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. She came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, he's talking about Israel, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon God. So in this last section, Jesus is no longer with the Pharisees and scribes. Instead, he encounters this woman who Mark notes is a Gentile, a Syrophoenician. This woman has a daughter with an unclean spirit. Now this should be ringing some bells because we see this kind of theme of clean and unclean coming up again. And what's happening here is that Mark is juxtaposing this story with what came before. He's comparing and contrasting this Gentile woman with those Jewish Pharisees. And this is important because Mark is probably writing to a predominantly Gentile Roman audience. And now, if the people of God are, are those with a heart of faith, not a facade of piety, if what marks out the people of God, if what it means to be the people of God is not man-made rituals done in hypocrisy, 
but sincere hearts devoted to Jesus, then the people of God are not limited to Israel, but it extends to us, to you, to the Gentiles. Now notice the differences here in these last seven verses. Prior to this, we had Jewish Pharisees who were concerned with ritual purity, acts of cleansing themselves so that they could be acceptable to God and set apart from other people. Jesus now gives a a parable to the crowd, uh, or in the prior section, he has to explain to them, to the disciples even, what matters is the heart. And Mark notes in verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. There are no unclean foods. In this passage, we find there are no unclean people as well. This doesn't mean that you know, we're not sinners or anything. He's talking about it in a different sense. I mean, yeah, you have a Gentile woman who, who had been seen as unclean since she just wasn't Jewish. You have a daughter who has an unclean spirit. But now, this woman, this woman is the only one, I think, in the entire Gospel of Mark who calls Jesus Lord. Jesus tells a parable and she actually understands. That's not what happens usually. He even told his own disciples earlier, are you also without understanding? He tells a parable and people don't get it. They go, huh? But this woman, she understands. What matters is a heart of faith. If that's what matters, then God's mercy could be for a person like this Syrophoenician woman. A person like you or me. And she understood that. And so she begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter, and Jesus tells a parable in what appears to be a very offensive one, too. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But this woman, she gets the parable. See, dogs are also kind of considered unclean. Same with Gentiles. She, she knows she's considered an unclean person by the Jewish Pharisees. But she also picks up on what Jesus is saying. Let the children be fed first. First? It must mean there's a second, right? So what does she say? Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She, she acknowledges that Jesus' mission, his mercy, was to go to Israel first. That was Jesus' plan as God's plan, even Paul understood it. But she also answers from within the parable, saying, yes, Lord, but there's enough mercy to go around. I need mercy, and I can only get it from you. So Jesus, please let some of that mercy spill over. For what mattered was a heart of faith, not a facade of piety then that highlighted what it meant to be part of the people of God, not insincere rituals that strive for symbolic purity while disregarding actual holiness. But this, the heart of faith that seeks after Jesus and responds in obedience. See, this woman, she calls Jesus Lord. She, she seeks after him and accepts his word, unlike the Pharisees who challenge his authority and his message. Jesus responds to this woman in verse 29, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now this word for statement, it's the same word used in verse 13 when Jesus charges the Pharisees with making void the word of God. 
So where the Pharisees rejected the word of God, this woman's word of faith results in her daughter's healing. Jesus tells her, because of what you said, you can go. The demon has left your daughter. Now he offers no proof, no signs, but she takes him at his word. She accepts his word. And that faith responded in obedience. She goes home and sees that her daughter is well. So by the end of this passage, what are we left with? The heart of the problem is the problem of our hearts. That's the root of the problem. It's our hearts which produce these sinful desires. It doesn't matter the number of rituals or traditions you adhere to. None of these things can make you holy. And what matters is the heart of faith devoted to Jesus and demonstrated in obedience to his word, not ours. And thanks be to God who through Jesus has promised to give us a new heart when we respond to him. He performs open heart surgery on us. As Paul writes in Titus, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, by, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks, Lord. Give you thanks for the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord. And we confess, we acknowledge that our hearts are sinful. Our hearts sometimes are in rebellion against you. And Lord, we need a new heart. We need you to give us a new heart. We thank you for your son, for your sacrifice, for the work of the Spirit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.